Welcome to the Fujilove podcast. In this episode, our guest is uh, Bert Stefani, a full-time commercial and editorial photographer from Belgium who specializes in creative portraits and lifestyle photography. He's a family father, a professional photographer, a workshop leader, educator, and more. Let's find out. Bert, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thanks for having me. I'm fine. And you? I'm uh, perfectly fine. I can't complain. Hello, Fuji lovers. My name is Jens Krauer. Today's episode is sponsored by Exposure X4, the new raw photo editor from Alien Skin Software. Exposure handles all your photo editing and organizing. It also provides superb Fujifilm raw processing. The new features in Exposure X4 include exceptional shadow and highlight recovery, as well as powerful transformation tools that help you correct visual distortion. There are also smart collections, which help you automatically organize your photo library. Exposure provides unmatched image processing quality for your Fujifilm files. There is no subscription required. Try Exposure free today at Alienskin.com and find out why it is the favorite choice for Fujifilm photographers. Save 10% when you purchase using the coupon code FUJILO. Let me start with my usual first question. Uh, who is Bert Stefani? Uh, it's a very complicated question. Uh, <laughs> No, I'm a photographer, um, an educator too, you could say. Um, a father of three kids. Um, and yeah, that's about it. That's about all I have time for. So you, you're bringing family and, and photography and personal projects together in a 24-hour day? I'm trying, I'm trying. But it's not always hard. And sometimes I've learned over the last two years that I sometimes just have to completely step away from photography and do something different for just for myself. What do you do when you step away from photography? Um, generally, I go outside. I need to be in nature. I need to be in the forest, in the fields. Uh, that's where I really recharge my batteries. Do you go all by yourself or you go with your family? Uh, depends. Depends. Um, sometimes go all by myself, sometimes go with friends or the family, doesn't matter really. Okay, I see. Now, before we dive into the whole aspect of nature, which is also going to be related to one or two of your projects, uh, I'm just wondering what was your way to photography? How did you become the photographer that you are today? Uh, I, I don't really know for sure. Uh, it started when I asked for my 18th birthday, uh, I asked my parents for a camera. That was still film, of course, back then. Um, but I don't really remember why I asked for a camera. I figure it had something to do with the fact that I thought that the girls would find it cool or something. I don't know. Uh, but that's, that's where it started. And then for a couple of years, I did quite a lot of photography and I had my own improvised darkroom. I was not very good at it because I was way too sloppy. And then many years later, it must be 13, 14 years ago, I, um, my neighbor had a, one of the original Rebels, the, D, the 300D from Canon. And I fell in love with it right away and I knew that I needed to have one. And then I bought one and yeah, I'm still taking pictures now. You don't need to impress the girls anymore at that point in time. No. <laughs> so uh, you said you got a Rebel, which is a, still a camera with a mirror. But then I remember you actually when I started with my photography uh, around 2013, 14. 
I remember distinctively one image of yours, I think, with uh, Zach Arias and Kevin Mullins uh, looking at the X100S prototype. How did you get from having the Canon Rebel into becoming one of the probably first X-photographers worldwide? Um, I shot Canon for quite a long time. Um, and I had all the white lenses and everything. Uh, but then I felt that, um, you know, after a couple of years, photography also becomes a job. And I didn't feel like uh, taking that big camera with me all the time when I was out with my kids or just, you know, by myself, not having an assignment. And I was very early interested in the mirrorless uh, idea. Um, and I, uh, I bought a Panasonic GF1 at the time, which is well, like one of the very first mirrorless cameras out there. And it, it was good in black and white, not so good in color. Uh, but I really enjoyed shooting with that little camera and I saw that it changed my photography, that it uh, got me closer, got me less attention. Um, and I really liked the pictures coming out uh, of that camera, although technically they were not nearly as good as what I got out of my full-frame DSLRs. Um, but I was very intrigued by this idea that um, I shot different pictures with it and I found them more interesting. They were, they were not technically very good, but they were interesting. Um, and a lot of my work work with the, the DSLRs was just like, it was good, it was technically nice, it was, clients were happy, but I felt like there was something missing. And I got that with these small mirrorless cameras and then at a certain point, when there were a couple more cameras on the market, I, um, I really started thinking about using it as um, a tool in my work, in my paid work too. And that was the time where I, I seriously doubted between the, uh, I think it was the Olympus OMD 5 or something like that. Um, and um, that was also when the X-Pro1 uh, came on the market. And um, I got a chance to a friend of mine who's also an ex-photographer, Ioannis Chululis. He had one and he borrowed it to me for a week. And I, I loved the files, but I hated the camera because that was firmware one. And it, the camera looked good, but it was a nightmare to work with. And so I said, like, mm, interesting concept, interesting prototype, but it's not quite there yet. And so I returned the camera, uh, but after a couple of days, I missed the camera. And so I asked to borrow it again uh, with the same result. Uh, and then I asked to borrow it a third time. And then I eventually, uh, it was mainly the, the files the, that convinced me to uh, take the plunge and go for uh, what was at that time not the most convenient camera. Uh, but I still think I made better images with it. And as the, the firmwares came out, I, um, I think it was version 2 or 3 or something that I decided to switch completely to uh, a Fuji system uh, and get rid of all of my full-frame camera gear, which was pretty early on in the Fuji ecosystem, of course. But um, I felt like it's making my job harder, but I'm making better pictures. So that was the, the whole reason for, uh, for the switch back then. Do you still have that uh, original X-Pro1? I do, I do. I actually had it fixed. 
uh, because uh, the shutter broke, which is not a surprise after so much use. Um, and it, I, um, it stayed in, um, in business actually because I borrowed it to a, a 16 or 17 year old girl. I think she's 17 now and she's so incredibly talented and she didn't have a camera. And um, I said like, you know, use mine until you can afford your own. And she now has a, an X-T2. And by that time, my X-Pro1 broke down, but I had it fixed and every now and then I still use it. The good old memories. Yeah, and it can do some things that the newer cameras cannot. Like it, it's the only, as far as I know, it's the only Fujifilm camera that can do um, double exposures in RAW. Oh, interesting. I actually didn't know that. Uh, and it's kind of funny that that camera still has that. And no camera ever since had that uh, option. So that's, that's why I uh, sometimes still use it and just for the fun of using that. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's a very important camera in my career, actually. I'm not the kind of person that keeps uh, a lot of um, memorabilia. Is that how you say it? Uh, I already have enough junk in my house, but um, that's one camera that I will never, uh, never let go. It will get an honorary place above the chimney in the Stefani's home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of fun, I, I, this year we, we met at the photo kino where you did uh, several presentations for Fujifilm. And uh, you took a little bit of a different approach. I remember you and I think it was Patrick LaRock walking into the backstage with a big uh, blue bag and uh, using a lot of uh, strange equipment to do a shoot. Are you now an official IKEA ambassador? I, I should ask for some uh, commission or something because a lot of people are uh, have, uh, even today on, I posted an image on Facebook and somebody asked me which salad bowl I used to uh, light a subject and, and just for the record for those people who weren't there I um, basically did a demo with uh, two one or two uh, speed lights uh, Profoto A1s but you can use any speed light and a bunch of stuff from IKEA uh, to create different light different moods uh, just to show that you don't always have to have a lot of expensive equipment um, it's about imagination and a bit of knowledge of light and then you can do a lot um, and it, it really struck a chord because I had so many emails uh, after that, those presentations about it um, and for me it's a bit of a natural thing to do to use whatever I have uh, at hand because I like to travel light I don't like to bring a lot of equipment um, and then I use whatever I have at the location um, and of course the, the IKEA demo was a bit condensed in that and it was a bit of a, a joke but at the same time it was my way of showing that you should never be held back because you don't have the budget for expensive light modifiers or anything. Uh, a shower curtain that costs 10 euros can give you very soft light comparable to a 2000 euro big softbox or something um, and I think it's important to for people to understand that um, I do have quite a lot of gear of course by now but when I started out I, I just had no other option than to use whatever I could find um, and I think it's an important message definitely at a, a show like Fotokina where pretty much everything is is, uh, is about the gear that it, it is about the knowledge and, and creativity and playing around too 
I was I was watching it and uh, basically you used a, a whole lot of different stuff, uh, salad bowls, things that you find in the in the kitchen and in the bathroom department to to play with uh, with the light you've created with your with your with your flashlight. Absolutely, I used um, colored cups. I used fake plants. I used shower curtains, lace curtains, a salad bowl, and probably some stuff that I have forgotten by now. And I didn't even test it uh, before I um, I did the demos because I wanted it to be about finding solutions. And if something's not working, try to figure out why it's not working, and then you can find the solution. Um, and I think that's that's the way that I usually work. There's very often in my in my work there's a, a level of um, improvisation, and I really love that challenge of of coming up with something. Um, and I think I need it to to do my best work too, because if I have all the equipment that I want, I usually end up doubting: should I use this? Should I use that? Should I use maybe this? And then I end up spending all my time worrying about what gear to use while if i don't have too many many options i feel like i'm more creative i think it's something that probably a lot of listeners know uh, as a feeling as well because you have today you have so much choice between cameras and lights and all these kind of things so sometimes just going back to the play mode brings a uh, way more interesting results than going uh, with the plan absolutely and i think it i'm at that point that it um uh, it's not like I'm unprepared for shoots. I always have plan B's and plan C's and I always have my safe shots. Uh, but I'm also, I also know that I, I, I will figure out something. Um, and uh, to me, um, the downside of digital photography and all this incredible gear that we have these days is that it is very predictable. And um, the downside of things like social media and everything is also that people um some know it some don't know it but we copy each other all the time and i'm guilty of that too and if you use um, these less uh photo related things as light modifiers then you get to be surprised again by photography by what you can do and i like that element of surprise because that keeps my interest going yeah, I'm fully with you on that. I think one, one of the dangers of social media is you if you want to be liked, as you said, you basically just recreate things. And then it's those kind of echo chambers where, where we cheer to each other for actually doing the same thing. So I, I think uh, it's a very good approach to kind of break out of the of the beaten path. Yeah, and I think in the end, it you have to be you. And it, it's something that I don't find that easy all the time. And I have to remind myself to be me. Uh, but I, I come to this. I have come to this point where uh, I realize that the the only thing that I have that sets me apart from the competition is me. It's not the camera gear. It's not the the lighting equipment. It's not the software. It's just me and the way that I see and the way that I interact with people is the only unique thing that I can bring to the table. And if I start um, copying others then i'm just one of the many it's an it's an incredibly valuable point valuable point because that's as you said it's the only thing that makes a difference is what's in your head and how creative you can work with things that unfold in front of you i believe that actually makes an, an excellent photographer 
I think so too because we we come to the we've come to the point when I started in photography and that's not that long ago that's 13 years ago or something and that was like the beginning of the the digital era um, it was a lot harder to make a good picture and now with all the automatic functions and TTL flashes and things like that um, the the technical part is a lot easier we have also a lot more leeway in post-production with the files that we get now and the options that the software gives us and the power of computers than we had even five years ago and um, I don't think it's a bad thing um, but it it is not something that that you can um, I know there's a, in ninety percent of the cases uh, someone with a camera on an automatic uh, setting can probably do something that is very similar to what a skills craftsman can do. Um, but to me, it means that um, it frees up. Um, other uh, energy that I can use to interact, to look around, to it, it makes me um, have more time and energy to to be doing the creative side rather than the technical side. I still believe in in a good sound technical foundation because you know in ten or twenty percent of the cases the automatic functions don't do what you want them to do, and then you need to be able to override them, but. Um, in many other cases, I feel like um, uh, I can use those technical advancements too, to my advantage. And to me, that is a, f a matter of um, letting go a bit more of the technical side so I can concentrate on the creative side. Yeah, I think a lot of times it's also just pushing the boundaries. If you follow the, the textbook uh, from a technical point of view, you're most probably not going to do anything exceptional as it's been done before but as soon as you push the boundaries and you do things that people would say you should not do that with that piece of equipment i think that's where things start to get interesting actually it's it's the um, eternal teenager inside me that always want to do the opposite than what something is supposed to do um, I, I had that as a teenager and i never really lost that to uh, the despair of my family and friends sometimes but i figured that uh, on a photography level it helps me to do things slightly different speaking of uh, kind of generic uh, images and, and a multitude of kind of the same kind of images on social media uh, what kind of an image makes you stop scrolling down with your thumb when you go through instagram what wows you when you look at pictures mm, not a sunset not a pretty model in a bikini. Um, it, it has to be personal. I like personal. I like um, things that are a bit pushing the boundaries. Um, in my own work, I'm not that much of a, a rebel, I think. Um, but I like uh, rebellious work. I like work that is not perfect, that is a bit dirty, that is a bit of a... Um, Mm, in a way political, not in, in the strictest sense, but like, for example, I feel like the, um, there's this um, tendency of uh, all, all the perfection that we see in the Instagram accounts of, of many people. I like it when people make it real um, and I like, um, I like it when 
if, if there's a picture of a woman, I don't mind the stretch marks. I don't mind the imperfections at all. I think they're more interesting than the perfection. Um, so it's about that. It's about real uh, authenticity is a, is a big word, although it's used way too often. But um, it, is, it is definitely something that stops me and, and that makes me want to follow or people or look at their images. Speaking of uh, real things, let's uh, let's dive into into uh, your project that uh, I'm interested in. Maybe it's even two. We'll find it out as the conversation goes. But I was actually searching on the internet. I found the your first posting on your hunting project was from 2013. So this goes for a while. Uh, Bert is working on documenting the the hunting scene, if we can say so. Um, yeah. Can you tell us what this project is about and how this got started? I can tell you how it got started. Um, one of my best friends is a hunter uh, and I never understood him. I never um, understood why, because he's the person that knows more about nature, that loves more about nature. He's like um, Crocodile Dundee in Belgium. Um, and I could never really um, understand why someone who is so in love with nature could kill people. And I saw it a bit as an unnecessary barbaric thing to do, although it's not like I was completely against it. And he tried to explain me many, many times, but I just couldn't understand it in words. And then at a certain point, I went with him to England for a hunting trip. And um, I still didn't understand much of it, but um, there was this one moment. It was like the last, last, last light. I don't have any pictures of it because it was too dark, but I could still see a little bit. And like you said, that, that I think that was 2012, 2011 maybe. Um, and he shot a, a small deer and he was uh, cutting it and although I'm, I'm not like uh, I don't have any problems with blood it's not like I, I get sick to the stomach when I see that or something um, but at the same time it was a bit gross um, but at a certain point he he stroked the animal and he said something I don't remember the exact words but it was something like Thank you for your life. And that was such an intimate thing. It's hard to describe, but I found, I felt something like incredibly primal uh, in, in that moment. And um, I think it was probably one or two years later when I, I, uh, I, I felt the need to do a, a documentary project, a long time, long term documentary project. And I said, let's do that about the hunting because I still don't understand that. But I feel like there's something incredibly intimate, incredibly primal into it that I, I want to understand. And so it took me a while to get into this hunting world because it's a pretty, pretty close community, definitely in, in the north of Belgium, in Flanders, where I live, uh, because there's, um, you know, it, it's a very politically incorrect thing to do. and, and the general opinion is pretty much against hunting. Um, so it took me a while until I um, reached the point where people trusted me enough to take me with them on hunting days. Um, and so I started documenting that and building relations and um, 
in the end I decided to um, uh, to do the hunting course, which is not mandatory, but it's pretty much impossible to uh, get your hunting license uh, and, and pass all the exams if you don't do it. And I felt like I'm going to follow that so I understand it a bit better and, and learn a bit more and, and learn, you know, meet some people that might be interesting for my project. Uh, and I, I did that for like... Um, two years pretty intensely and then I um, eventually I, I felt it was the lo the next logical step was to to try it myself because I had all these opinions but um, how you know how valid are they if you don't uh, have tried it yourself and so I went through the whole thing of, of all the axioms and everything which is quite a a pretty um, serious business with a lot of studying and practicing and things like that and uh, I became a hunter myself um, I'm still not a very good one um, but I felt like I needed to do that to understand completely what these people are doing but at the start my idea was to do it for a year and then make a book about it uh, a general book about what is hunting in Flanders uh, or in Belgium, but the longer uh, I had been doing it, the more questions I had. And at this point, it's something that is still not finished. I have written quite a lot. I have tons of pictures, but um, I don't really know what direction that I have to take with it because I have become, I cannot write a neutral book because I have become part of that hunting scene. Um, so I think it's a bit more about my story as a hunter, my development as a hunter, uh, like going in as a, someone who was slightly opposed but intrigued and then slightly be won over by how, um, how these people love nature and manage nature and then becoming part of it. Um, so it, it's something that I'm... I'm struggling with. I still want to do something with it. I still shoot for it. Uh, I still write quite a bit of it. But at this point, it's not something that is very clear to me, like it has to be in this or that direction. And to be fairly honest, I don't care too much about the end result. Because I've learned so much about photography and about what I want to be doing um, during that project that uh, for me, it's a success even if there, you know, if, if there never will be a book, which is still the goal, but if there never will be a book, then um, I won't feel sorry for myself. Do you, do you feel an, an obligation uh, to, to communicate this correctly uh, for the hunters in that sense? What I'm trying to say is if you work yeah. so long on this, do you feel like you kind of became an ambassador of some thought or some philosophy and you have to communicate it correctly? I sometimes feel a bit stuck between two worlds, uh, but I do feel the need to clarify things because I uh, didn't have the full picture. And I think that is partly the fault of the hunting community, which is very secretive uh, about what they're doing. And in the last couple of years, they've been opening up quite a lot, which is a good thing. Um, but um, I'm like still pretty new to it. I'm still, I feel like a city boy between uh, 
real outdoorsman when I go out with them. Um, but um, I do feel the, the need to communicate it because I, um, I experienced how wrong I was in my assumptions about hunting. And I think that um, I've been thinking a lot more about the meat that I get from the supermarket than the meat that I harvest myself. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a lot of people who have, uh, how do you call it, preconceptions about hunting. And a lot of it is wrong. Uh, but there's also, um, on the hunting side of things, there's, um, there's still often a bit of a macho talk. There's still that secrecy thing sometimes going on. Uh, like I said, it is changing, but um, it, I feel like I'm um, well-placed to be like in the middle and I can uh, build bridges from one side to the other, but also from the other side to the one side. Um, and, and I, I see that as an obligation and, um, or at least as something that I want to do because I want people to understand what hunters are doing and I want hunters to understand how people are looking at it uh, from the outside because they don't necessarily have all the information they need to form uh, their own decent opinion. And I don't mind if people are against hunting, but I do mind if it's based on uh, the wrong assumptions. So, and I think that photography, you know, photography, storytelling, that's, that's what it is to me. And I feel like my experience um, and, and knowledge in photography and, and videography too can uh, help to do that, can help those stories and maybe make people think about it differently. Hello, Jens Krauer here with you. This episode of the Fujilove podcast is sponsored by Exposure X4, the photo editor and organizer from Alien Skin software that has just been released. Exposure handles every stage of your Fujifilm photo editing workflow. You can copy, call, edit and retouch and then export and print your images. Superb raw image processing quality includes newly improved shadow and highlight recovery. Exposure provides you with many other unmatched creative tools as well as with powerful organizing tools. Visit Alienskin.com to try it free today and discover it for yourself. When you purchase, save 10% with the coupon code FUJILOVE. I think it's also a valuable point for everybody who, who's interested in, in documentary photography because as, as I listen to you and, and your struggle to put out the right message, I think it's an, an, an eternal truth that the closer you get, the better images you get. But then also the deeper you go, the more you have to reflect about how to be, to, to, to make or to communicate the right way for the people that you've been shooting, like to not abuse the kind of trust that you got. It's, it's very fine lines, but it's also very interesting. And I think that as storytellers, we have an obligation to tell stories that we think that are worth telling, even if they don't uh, get paid. You don't get paid for those stories very often. Um, but to me, it's like, you know, there's no such thing as the truth. Um, there is my truth, and I can only tell my honest truth the way I feel it and make it clear that it is my uh, truth. Um, and, but I think that that's still ver very valuable. And just like the, the truth of an anti-hunter who is uh, very invested in and, and has studied the subject a lot, um, you know, that's also valuable. So I'm not saying that my truth is the only one, uh, but it is at least 
a truth. And a truth that we can then observe from, from your point of view, which is quite a close one to the subject and that makes the photographer's work so valuable. Yeah, and I think closeness is, is, is so interesting and it's, it's one of the reasons why I went to smaller cameras is to get closer to my subject. I was just about to ask, because when you go out a uh, hunt, um, assuming after you did uh, the necessary education that you have your uh, rifle maybe on one shoulder and then a camera bag on the other, what do you bring along in such a setting where you're not supposed to make any noise, you're not supposed to disturb the hunting itself? How do you work on the scene when you do that project? Uh, it's very hard to do both, because both um, really acquire all your attention. Um, I did get some good images while I was hunting myself. Uh, but then it's just uh, an X100F uh, in my jacket pocket. Um, but most of the time when I'm doing photography or videography, because I did a, a couple of short videos with a, a, a hunter in Holland, um, then I'm just doing photography or videography. But it, of course it helps a great deal that you understand what's going on, that you're not um, making noise when you're not supposed to, that you're ducking when you're supposed to, that you're always in safe areas. And hunters in general are very, very safe. But it, you being in the wrong place can mean that they cannot take the shot, uh, which is still why they are there. So, um, and, and, you know, you build the relations too to, um, to sometimes have people, you know, miss a shot or not be able to, to take a shot because you want to take your shot with a camera. So I think it's very hard to uh, do both at the same time and I don't really attempt it too much. Uh, but I, uh, I did learn a lot from hunting that I use in my photography and the other way around. Um, it's not so dissimilar as you would say because we're both shooting and it's both about the right moment, it's both about um, anticipating, it's uh, about reading the scene. So there's a lot of similarities to that if you, if you think about it. It's very true. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I fully agree with that. You have to, as you said, you have to read the environment, be ready and then literally take the shot uh, one way or another. Um, also, a point I want to ask you is you did recently a promotional movie for Fujifilm about the monster glass. And I think you have a project there that is called The Wild People, which is again, as we said in the beginning, also connected to your love of nature and where you go to, to get inspired. Are those projects in any way connected, the hunting and the wild people project, or are they fully separate undertakings? I don't know. Uh, at this point, it's, it's just following a bit of my gut feeling. And um, there are many hunters who are not wild people, uh, but some of them really are. Uh, and I think those are the most interesting people because um, I've been uh, in just on, on a personal level in the last couple of years I've been trying to reconnect with, with nature in a way although it sounds very very cheesy but uh, I find it important to me and I know a lot of people are actually doing it and I figured out that there are still quite a lot of people even in our uh, very um, city-like little country there's still people who have so much knowledge there's still people who can look up to the sky and say it's going to rain in 10 minutes instead of looking on their smartphone to see what the weather will be like and um, i think there's, um, there's so much value 
in those skills and I feel like I don't generally have those skills and most people don't have them um, but there's a, a big value in it and I um, yeah it started out as they asked me to do something about the GF250 lens for the GFX and um, a portrait thing and I could have you know just hired a model and, and shot for a day and then be done uh, but I felt like I want to do something that is close to my heart because I really uh, think it's great that Fuji kind of gives you carte blanche and says like uh, here's a little bit of money uh, go shoot something um, and it's very rare that you get so much freedom so I, I really wanted to do something uh, interesting with it and uh, at first I was thinking about maybe shooting indigenous people in Canada or Sweden but that just was a I couldn't get that sorted out in such a short time and then I thought yeah but why am I looking trying to look so far uh, to other countries other regions let's look close to home and um, try to photograph some more people find uh, some people uh, to start with and um, it is uh, visually it's pretty different from my hunting project because the hunting project is pretty documentary style um, while this project is a, a bit more thought out although a lot of the shoots are also have a big element of, of improvisation they don't look like it I wanted to be at that fine line of real and larger than life but I also wanted to show the pride to show the connection to the to the landscape of these people um, and so a lot of the, the the deeper reasons are probably the same but I see the project as a bit of a different thing but maybe they get combined at some point I don't know well we'll we'll figure it out as soon as you have uh, figured it out yourself as it seems but you know <laughs> yeah I, I don't I don't think it always has to be so clear um, the reasons why you do personal project um, it should not be to make a book that sells really well it should not be um, to have a, a big show it, it should be because you're interested in it and I'm not really good at ending projects but they're still very valuable to me and I let them kind of decide their own direction because in, in all my paid work then it's very clear what the end result has to be and what the point and what the goal is. Um, so in my own personal work I don't want to deal with that. I want to have that creative freedom. I want to have the, the freedom to change my mind even on a project. I want to have the freedom to abandon a project and pick it up five years later or something like that. Um, and I think that's the whole point of we started off by talking about being yourself. Well, I think that is being yourself too. I fully agree. And on, on the same subject, let me take a, a quote of your homepage where I want to ask you about uh, where you actually say you see yourself as an amateur because you ch challenge yourself continuously with new photographic adventures. How important is it to you as a creative person to regularly leave the safe ground and kind of make yourself insecure and challenge yourself? I think it's probably too important to me uh, in <laughs> to the level that um, I think my business could be a lot better if I was not such a, an amateur and an amateur comes from the word to love uh, so I love photography uh, I love telling stories and um, but it is who I am and 
you know, I, I still, I have to run a business, I know, uh, but I, I'm not interested in that part, but, you know, I have to feed those three kids of mine, mine. Um, so I try to do the best that I can, um, but there's still that passion to, I don't think the passion these days is so much in the photography itself, but it's in what photography allows you to do, which is telling stories, which is changing moods. Um, but I'm passionate about that, and um, it's often not the case in the paid work, although I do have some clients and some projects where I can really do that. But um, I'm trying to find the middle ground there between um, making enough money uh, and doing what I love. Uh, but that's an always shifting thing. It's never constant. It's never there. I, I also accept the fact that I will never get there. Um, it, it's just a process and it's part of the whole thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think to me, I could not keep up photography if I didn't do uh, these personal things. And it can be just asking a friend and say, hey, can we go and shoot uh, for a couple of hours tonight just for fun? Um, or it can be one of those projects we talked about or it can be street photography. And I need, to, I need to do that to keep myself interested because if I did photography just for the money, then I would have picked a very, very bad profession because there's way better ways to make money if, if that's what you're after. So if I'm not in it for the money, then I at least should be in it for the creative side of things and, and do that because if I... If I lose my passion, I will not keep up with uh, the constant stress of uh, this job, which is not an easy one. Um, and the only reason why I keep up with it, because it gives me some, so much back. Well, it's a bit of an ambivalent relationship I figured now over the years that I spent in photography, because photography itself is like a projector. It's rather empty if you don't bring anything by yourself, meaning ideas and inspiration. But then if you bring too much of it, you struggle with, uh, as you just mentioned, dedicating your time to make money rather than, you know, doing your personal project. So it's always been a catch uh, 22 on, on that side. Absolutely. And I think we just have to live with it. I talked to uh, Damien uh, Lovegrove in New York, and he also stated that his biggest achievement, he says, is to be able to do the project he wants rather than to make the big money on the commercial side. Yeah, well, you need a balance, right? And I'm, in the last couple of months, I'm really trying to focus a bit more on the business because I need to. Um, but then after working on the business and thinking about numbers and marketing plans and um, cold calling potential clients and things like that, then I just need to go out and shoot something for myself because otherwise I, I won't keep up. Um, so it's, it's a bit of both and... I just come to accept that, um, you know, I am me. I am that stupidly passionate photographer. Um, but then let's just try to use it to my advantage. Uh, although it's not always an advantage. I sometimes wish I was just a good businessman that had a camera. But that's not who I am. So I'm not going to fight that. There's no point in fighting that. That doesn't mean that... I don't have to take up my responsibilities towards my family, of course, but, um, you know, I try to find a balance, but the balance is always different. Speaking of balance, which is probably really the key word here, uh, we're slowly closing in in, in terms of time uh, to the end of the podcast. So we need to also balance that in regards to time that we can use. 
Um, I would like to ask you, Bert, if what's your what's your lonely island setup? Speaking of gear, uh, what's the two three pieces of equipment you'll take anywhere, and you're sure to get the job done? <sighs> That's a hard one. That's a hard one. I think. I think I would probably grab my GFX and the 63mm or at the moment the X-T3 and the 35 and one flash or something. One speed light and a trigger because I want it off my camera. I think that would be, that would be my choice. It will definitely be a, a 50mm equivalent lens but I'm uh, you know, thinking about uh, image quality versus speed and that would be gfx versus xt3 or something so if you've chosen those three pieces of gear how many do you leave behind in other words how much gear do you have at home oh way too much way too much um i'm actually uh rounding up things that i should sell um i try to minimize as much as possible but um, but generally when I go out and shoot, I don't take too much gear. Uh, but there's some things that I need for specific jobs. Um, I usually don't take long lenses with me, but sometimes I need a 50-140 or I need the 100-400. Uh, but it's not part of my standard kit. When I, most of the times when I go out, either for myself or for a client, I just have a backpack with two camera bodies, a couple of lenses and a couple of lights. Um, and I do have um, some other cameras. And um, the thing is, I like to switch cameras every now and then. And then are like, I've been in love with the X-T3 since it came out. Um, but I'm also looking forward to a, a potential X-Pro successor because I like the form factor a bit more. And sometimes I want to take my X100 out because it's so nice and silent and small. So I, I like to pick whatever I feel like fits the job, but also fits my mood the best. So yeah, it's it's um, I I it's sometimes it's it's purely practical. Like if I have to shoot action, then uh, I'm going to take an XT3, and I may take a 1655 and a 5140 because it's the most flexible setup that I have. Uh, but other times I want to be more small uh, or lightweight. I want to be less noticed, and then I may take an X100. And for most of my portrait work and commercial work, I, I've been using GFX mainly. Uh, but it really depends on on the kind of job that I need to be doing. How do you look at the, the 50R and how would you look at the 50R versus an X-Pro3, speaking of the form factor? Mm, it's a hard one. I've only had a brief time with the 50R. Um, I will have some more time in, I think, two weeks with it to, to get my... Because um, it's a difficult one to understand. I like the form factor because I've always been a fan of the, the rangefinder look. Um, on the other hand... Um, I'm pretty sure it doesn't balance as well with the bigger lenses, like the 110 or even you know the 250 or something. I think it, I, no doubt it will work, but it's the same as working with an X Pro 2 uh, with a 5140. Yes, it can be done. It works perfectly, but it just feels a bit wrong. It, it's not as comfortable in my hands. So. Um, I'm, I'm interested in that camera, um, although 
since I already have a 50S, uh, and that is a big investment. I will probably not buy one, I think. Um, but I'm, I'm very interested in, in using it as a travel camera, for example, like a, a 50R with a 63 or a 45 or the, the new pancake that is, or as far as it can be called a pancake, uh, that is coming out for the GFX. I think that would be like an amazing uh, way to slow down and, and shoot travel images. So, and I'm actually going to travel with it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to see how it does for me. Uh, I think it's a great camera. I think it looks way better than the 50S, but from an ergonomical, practical point of view, the, the 50S is probably more uh, all round. It's the same with the XT series compared to the X Pro series, I think. It's like from a logical point of view, you should probably go for an XT3, and you should probably go for a GFX 50S, uh, but there's something that cannot be um, always put into numbers and, and into reason. It's just the feeling of, of liking to use a camera is also very important. And um, I figured out I will probably have that with the uh, GFX 50R too, is that it's really a camera that feels really perfect for me. It's super good to hold, to shoot, even if people say it's a bit big. I actually like it a lot to hold it. I was wondering, is the the 100, as we call it, the super full frame an option for you coming up? Or you're sticking with the current sensor size? I don't know. I don't know. I have really haven't given it too much thought. And I, I do think a lot about cameras. Um, also because I have a lot of conversations with... Uh, users and engineers from Fujifilm um, but um, it's definitely at this point not something that I would need um, but it's it's um, and you could argue that very often I probably don't even need the GFX 50s um, but I like what I can get out of it and um, I think it it has uh, pushed me into some other directions, maybe even some other markets. So I don't know if, if maybe if that trend continues and, and the work gets a bit more higher end uh, commercial, then I might take that plunge. But at this point, I think it's a very interesting camera, but I don't know if it will be for me. That That's hard to, to say. Um, I like new cameras. I like just the fact that a new camera gets me creative. But... Um, when you're talking about medium format, even though it is affordable for medium format, it's still a lot of money. So it's not just something that I can buy to boost my creativity a bit. Then there are probably better and cheaper ways. But I don't know, maybe it will find a way into my work. Because uh, I have been, I reluctantly invested in the GFX because it was a big investment and I didn't know if I really needed it. I liked it, but I didn't know if I really needed it or that it would really make a difference in my work uh, for the client then. Uh, but clients have been very receptive to it. Um, they really love my images uh, that I do with the GFX. Also, I shoot a bit different with it, a bit slower. Um, and so I think that it, it has to make sense on a business point of view. Uh, you could probably justify buying an X100 if you don't really need it. Uh, but I cannot justify buying a GFX 100 if I don't really need it. So it really depends on, on how 
things will evolve in the next year. I'm definitely looking forward to it because there's a, a lot of new technology that, that will be coming into it, like the, the IBIS and everything in a medium format camera. That I think that's great, but um, will it be for me? I don't know. Yeah, and then also we have the the, the, the global shot discussion and this uh, the, the yeah. famous new sensor that is supposed to come up. Yeah, but I've been hearing about global shutters for that it's coming very soon. I've been hearing about that for six years or something. So I don't know if it will. <laughs> it, it's like a unicorn thing. Will it? Does it exist? I don't know. I hope it will because I like to use flash every now and then, and that would be like a that would be such a game changer to be able to to use flash at any sync speed and then not have that physical shutter anymore. Uh, I think it could be like a bit disruptive in the industry too. And maybe some brands are a bit reluctant by doing it. Uh, so it's, it's interesting from a technical point of view because I'm a bit of a gear nerd too. I like to know how things work. Um, so it's very interesting. Um, but for now, I'm like, I can do everything I want to. And if new options become available, I'm interested in them. Um, but let's see what we get when it's uh, when it's there. Let me let me pick up that unicorn thought. If if you could hypothetically, let's say Fujifilm comes and says, "Bert, uh, we will develop what you wish for in the Fuji world." What would be your your input, or what would you like to have from Fujifilm? I would like to see um, um, different GFX lenses mainly. Uh, I, I think with the X-Series, they're so well-rounded. If I have to, and I, I've, I've told Fujifilm that before, um, I would like to see um, the X-H series and the X-T series to merge. I would like to see IBIS and, uh, in all these cameras, because uh, I think if they work on it, they can. They can put it in a smaller body. I know there's like in incredibly smart people working there. I met several of them. Um, so I would like to see that and I would like to see a flip screen on the cameras because um, I think that in these days of vlogging and things like that it can be very helpful and there's no reason not to do it. Um, a bigger battery or a more higher capacity battery at least is also something that we should start, they should start thinking about. Um, but to me, what I'm really missing at the moment is faster uh, and more spectacular GFX glass because most of the lenses are extremely good, but I don't have a lot of their own character. Like some of the, a lot of the uh, lenses in the X series have their own character. Uh, and it's, it's not something that you can put in numbers. But for example, I still love the 35 1.4. It's still my favorite lens. And if I compare it to the 63 2.8 on the GFX, which is so much better and sharper and, and has less um, flare when there's backlight or anything, but it misses a bit of character to me. And the only lens that I get really excited about from that point of view, not from a technical point of view, is the 110 millimeter. Um, so I would like to, them to, you know, um, put a bit more attention into that uh, when it comes to GFX. Uh, but yeah, th that's already a lot, right? 
that that's already a lot. It's a lot of the things that made us initially actually fall in love with Fuji, especially the 35 1.4, the 56 1.2. Those are those lenses that just look magical. And if uh, Fuji can yeah. bring more of that back, I think we'll all be more than happy. But I, I can see that, um, like with the GFX range, I can see that um, the um, uh, when you start a system like that and, and you are targeting a new market, then um, a lot of, of, of traditional medium format use, it has to be perfect and, and technically perfect and sharp. And you can add the, the character later in post-production uh, in a way. It's easier to do it that way. Uh, than to use than to get technical perfection in post uh, production, um, so I can see where they are coming from. But like for example, I have this uh, very old uh, 58 millimeter Minolta rocker, which is not a medium format lens; it's a 35 millimeter lens, and I bought it for 50 euros on eBay and use it with an adapter, and it's not sharp, it vignettes, but it has so much character. And I would not mind uh, a couple of those lenses uh, coming from Fuji, having autofocus and all what we're used to uh, from Fujifilm. But um, yeah, I, I, I sometimes miss that on the GFX is that sometimes the image is too clean. And I get it that if you want to get the most out of such a spectacular sensor, then you need very neutral glass. Um, so it's a bit of a... I don't think you can have the character and that um, technical perfection in the same lens, probably. might be difficult. And from a manufacturer's point of view, what you just said makes sense, that you're trying to produce the cleanest image and then apply kind of the character in post. There's probably not everybody likes the same character. Yeah, absolutely. And so I get their decisions, but I'm, I'm really interested to see what, what's coming lens-wise. Because for me, at this point, they're... I love the 110 and I only have the only other lens that I have is the 63 and I would like to have something wide uh, but the 23 is too wide the 45 is not wide enough so I'd like to have something in between preferably 2.8 or f2 um, but there's a there's some third-party manufacturer who, and there's all these adapter things and it's good that uh, Fuji is not blocking that off or in any way they're even encouraging it i think uh, and it's nice to see what you can do, do with all that adapted glass and manual focusing is actually not that hard with those cameras um, so yeah we, we we actually have the options they're just not from fujifilm right now as we slowly close into the end um, we have to kind of round it up even if we could probably go on for another moment i'm looking forward to your next uh, i hope you're at photo kina early next year we'll see what what other ikea items we can we can use <laughs> there. I'm, i'm gonna i'm gonna do a video about it on youtube so uh if i have a bit of time i will do a video about ikea stuff Good. Um, I also wanted to ask you, when people look for you, uh, where do they find your work? Where are you present on social media or on the internet? Um, my website for clients is birdstephanie.com and I have a website for photographers, which is birdstephanie.info. Uh, um, it's still a bit of a work in progress, but I started it up as kind of a general thing. I don't want to be blogging and vlogging at a regular intervals because... 
if I have something to say, I want to be able to do it. If I don't have anything to say, I don't want to say anything. Um, but that's kind of like the place where it all comes together, the, the videos and articles and things like that. And otherwise, I'm on um, Instagram. It's just my name, Berstefani. Um, I'm probably on an, a lot of other uh, social media, but I'm not that active uh, there. So it's probably going to be Instagram or my website are probably the best choices. Good. So jump from Bird's website and you'll find all his projects. Anything big coming up in the next year that we should know before it happens or that you want to tell us about? So I'm, uh, I'm going to Japan in a couple of weeks just for five or six days, I think. Um, it's always very exciting to go to uh, Japan. I've been there a couple of times already and it's such a weird but interesting um, uh, world. It's so completely different from what I'm used to and um, I'm going to try to make a, a GFX 50R review while I'm there but my main goal to be there is to uh, talk to the people at Fujifilm uh, about future products, future cameras, um, lenses, things like that. So I'm very excited about that and otherwise I don't know what the future holds for me. Well, we'll be we'll be watching and observing what the the future brings for you. By the way, I thought you were you were you were you were doing a book about Tokyo. Is that still a project of yours? I, I did a book about Tokyo actually, um, but it, I, I did when I went there the first time. Um, I was asked by Fujifilm Belgium or Europe to do uh, my impression of uh, twenty four hours in Tokyo. Uh, but the sad thing is that that book uh, is not available because it's something that they uh, made uh, for their printing clients because Fujifilm does a lot of large format printing, which is a completely different division from the uh, camera part. Um, and so the, I think they made 1500 or 2000 of the books and they were only given to selected clients of them. I'm still pushing them to make it available as a free ebook because I'm still pretty proud of it, but uh, it's not officially uh, available. I hope you have a copy at home. I have a couple of copies and I sometimes give away one, but I'm down to four or five now. So um, I have to be very careful about who I give it to. So those are probably not going to go very easy. Um, Bert, any, any last words for the Fujilove community before we round this talk up? Oh, well, um, Fuji lovers love Fuji, uh, but also love photography, love yourself. And the main message I want to give is try to do something with your photography. And it's great to talk about uh, gear and techniques, and we learn a lot from that. But um, if you go to all the trouble to learn so much about your gear and your uh, techniques, do something with it, because uh, that's the, the real point of photography to me. Great. Nothing to add to that. Bert, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your knowledge. And uh, we'll have you back soon. Thank you, Jens. Hope to meet you soon again. Mm -hmm.